Let's take our Bibles this morning as we continue in worship and turn to the 12th chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 12. One of the hardest things for me, anyway, about preaching and putting together sermons is coming up with a title. So I just stole Colby's title from last week, okay? Gospel-shaped culture. We're going to continue that, that thought. And uh, today, Colby and Catherine are on a little getaway with some high school friends. They've been doing this for years, so they're enjoying some much-needed rest and refreshment. So that's where they are today. Uh, let me say thank you to our men yesterday. We had a great men's breakfast. Had a good, good group of guys who showed up uh, yesterday morning. Uh, this afternoon at 4 o'clock, our church will be ministering at Pine Valley Retirement Center. Uh, we will not have our Sunday night service here, but everybody will be at Pine Valley at 4 o'clock uh, ministering over there. Uh, Brother Eddie McKnight and C.J. McKee's Life Group will be uh, hosting in that group. And so if you can come and join us, that'd be great. And today I'll take a point of personal privilege. Uh, Teresa and I are celebrating on the 24th of this month. We got married May 24th, 1980. So today we've been married 448 months today, okay? So we celebrate. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I forgot to tell you that before I left this morning, but anyway, okay. All right, and also just not to bother you or annoy you or anything or be to distract you, I had surgery this week on my eye, okay? So uh, I had a cataract. <laughs> Every time I think about cataract, I think about this guy in our church in Jackson, Alabama. You know, Jackson's way down in the country. It's about 30 minutes from Mobile by telephone. It's out in the sticks. And this old guy, he said, where were you, preacher? I said, what are you talking about, John? He said, well, I had... I had cataract arrest, and they put me in insensitive care for two days. So <laughs> I had cataract surgery, and I'm doing great, but I can't see. Okay, but uh, I do want to begin by trying to read the 12th chapter of Romans, verses 9 through 21. I hope it's on the screen. If not, I'll get my glass. There we go. All right. Let's stand together in honor of God's word. Chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Do, uh, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Romans 12, 1 through 21, 9 through 21. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy toward us. We thank you, Father, for the life-changing power of the gospel. God, because we are followers of Christ, we will live different lives. God, the gospel changes everything about us. Lord, especially how we relate to one another. Lord, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. A gospel-shaped culture. This morning, we want to look at the fact that the gospel changes our culture because it changes us. The verse that led me to Christ as a freshman at the University of Alabama, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And that verse says, if any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creature. A new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become what? New. See, the gospel changes our culture because the gospel changes us one person at a time. And just remind you, if we're going to reach the world, we're going to do that one person at a time. And our culture changes, the gospel changes our culture as it changes us as we live out the gospel. For the first 11 chapters, Paul has been telling us and declaring to the gospel is declared, the righteousness of God is declared. Now, in verses 12 through the rest of the book, the gospel is put on display. The gospel is put on display. This is how we live out the gospel. But one of the main differences that the gospel makes in us, one of the main differences as the gospel-shaped culture is in how we relate to one another. See, the gospel of grace offers us a righteousness before, me, before God. The gospel offers us a righteousness before God, and then we're told how to live out our lives before men. We are to be different. Kobe began this section last week telling us that to be a part of a, gen, a gospel-shaped culture, it should be one of genuine love, repentance, family, humility, excitement, hope, and generosity. So we're going to continue uh, that theme as we look this morning at five principles of a gospel-shaped culture from verses 14 through 21. And the first principle that we're going to look at is the principle of adversity. This is the good one. How do we relate to people who don't like us? Now, I know, you know, you say, well, everybody likes me, right? You know, you know, we're going to have enemies. I love what the scripture says that when we walk in integrity, that even our enemies will be at peace with us. There's a lot in that because we're going to have people who will not agree with us. There'll be people who will persecute us because of the gospel. We will have adversity in our life because of our relationships. And so what we're going to do, the passage kind of breaks down funny. Don't get lost, but I hope you have your Bible. We're going to look at verses 14 and then 17 through 21, because that's how we, Paul tells us how to deal with our, uh, with our enemies, okay? Then we'll go back and look at 15 and 16, okay? But 17 through 21, beginning though in verse 14, the, Paul says here, attempt to bless your enemies, okay? And there's a reason I put that subtitle there, attempt, as we'll see in just a minute. But Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Bless and do not curse. Now, ain't that hard? I mean, yeah, I'm thinking of the, you know, it's hard to, to relate to people sometimes. You know, as the poet said, to live above with those we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with those we know, now that's a different story. <laughs> yeah, it's why well, the guy said, you know, just people. People always get in the way, and especially people 
who don't like us or we have an adversarial relationship with. And if we live long enough, we will. I love, I've got a little book called uh, Letters to God by Children. Children's Letters to God. There's another one, Letters to Pastors by Children, okay? And Amy wrote this. She said, Dear Pastor, I heard you say to love our enemies. I'm only six years old and I don't have any yet. I hope to have some when I'm seven. <laughs> love Amy. Don't worry, Amy. By the time you get to six and a half, you will probably have some enemies. Uh, but it's easy to love those who love us. But what do we do when people turn against us? How do we treat our adversary? Jim Phillips says this, the test of reality in Christian profession is seen when life turns against the believer. That's where your metal is tested. That's where the grace of God in you is tested. The distinctive behavior of Christians in this area is to bear witness to the world of the truth of the gospel. And the world will ask, who are these men? Who are these women? Where does this come from? So what I'm going to tell you this morning is Paul tells us in verse 14 and then verses 17 through 21 is totally contrary to what the world tells you. When we treat our enemies the way the scripture tells us to treat our enemies, the world's going to say, who are these people? Where did you come from? Where did you come from? I love that. What Peter says in first Peter three, he said, but sanctify Christ as Lord of your heart and always be ready to answer, to answer everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that's within you. See, when we live out the gospel, especially in the way we treat our adversaries, people are going to be asking us about the hope of the gospel. They might not come up and say, hey, tell me about the hope of the gospel. But they'll come up and say, how did you handle that? How do you respond the way you do to that person? Why is your family different? And so we'll be living out the truth of the gospel as we take these verses and understand what the Bible says, how we're to respond to our enemies. So the Christian's response to their enemies is, very, is a clear testimony to the power of the gospel. Scripture is very clear about how we treat our enemies. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. 14, 17, and 19 tell us three things. We are, first of all, to resist revenge. Revenge. As I read these verses again, you know, it's obvious they're not hard to understand, are they? There's nothing hard to understand about what Paul's saying. What's the hard part? Doing it. James says, be doers of the word, not hearers only. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Verse 19, never take your own revenge. So the first principle in our adversity relationships is that we do not take revenge. We resist revenge. How do we relate to those? We resist. When those curse us, we bless them. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, we're first talking on the level of our verbal sparring, okay? When someone says something bad about you, what's our natural response? Slap them. <laughs> In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> but we, when they say something, we want to immediately say something back. But let me tell you what the Bible says here. Those who curse us, we're to bless them. You know, the word actually is the word where we get our term eulogy. Have you ever been to a funeral? Somebody asks you, say, Keith, what do, they want you, what do you want them to say at your funeral? 
I want him to look at me and say, hey, he's still moving. No, but anyway, <laughs> eulogy. To, to say, to bless someone is a eulogy. And what do we do in a eulogy? We speak, a, we speak good about that person. We say something good about that person. So let me ask you this. Can you do that? If someone is, as we say in Alabama, cussing you out, the Bible says, don't get to that level. Bless those who curse you. We're to bless or speak well of those who persecute us, who curse us. It means that we're to say something good about them. What did your mama teach you? If you can't say something good, don't say anything at all. That's where that comes from. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Verse 17. So we're going 14 to 17. Never pay back evil. Our natural response, again, is to deal with people the way they deal with us. If someone's kind to us, it's easy to be kind to them. If someone is mean to us, we'll be mean to them. Don't pay back evil for evil. 19, never take your own revenge. Our natural response is to get even when somebody mistreats us. And again, whether it's on the verbal level or the physical level, we want to get even. We want to get revenge. It's an interesting thing about revenge. The Old Testament said this, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now see, that, that in itself was a gracious principle. Because if somebody were to poke out my eye, hopefully it'd be this one. If somebody wants to poke out my eye, what do we want to do naturally? We want to get both of theirs. If somebody knocks out my one tooth or a tooth, we want to knock out all their teeth. So God said, no, that's not right. You have equal retaliation. Equal retaliation. Somebody knocks out your eye, you get their eye. You're entitled to it. They knock out your tooth, you get one tooth. Okay, equal retaliation, which was a form of grace. But then what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? Oh, he says, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. So Jesus raises that standard, that, that standard of re equal retaliation is no longer the principle. Jesus says, don't resist those who attack you. We are to resist revenge. Very clear. Verse 14, 17, and 19. So what is the key? How, do we, how can we possibly do that? How can we possibly do that? We see this in verse 19. Leave it with the Lord. Leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Leave room. Leave it with the Lord. Leave room for the wrath of God. This is why we don't resist. This is why we don't strike back. We, this is why we don't punch them in the mouth. This, we, we leave it with the Lord. God's going to take care of it because he's our heavenly father. We trust him. Think for a minute about your enemies or your enemy. Those people or that person who's mistreated you or spoken bad about you. And you want to get back, don't you? You want to retaliate. Don't. Put it out of your mind. For the gospel's sake, for your sake, don't think about revenge. Don't think about retaliation. Put it out of your mind. As a matter of fact, just get out of the way and leave it with the Lord. Again, I know some of the things are easier said than done, but let me tell you, if you will do this, I promise you, your life will be different. 
and the gospel will be glorified, will be magnified and Christ will be glorified. Okay. Let God do what he will do because God will always repay evil. We may not see it in our lifetime. We may not see justice, but if we will leave it with the Lord, I assure you, based on the promises of God's word, God will take care of it. You remember that night in the garden when Jesus was being arrested by the soldiers? What did Peter do? Peter took out his sword. This is not a sword, but this is my sword, okay? What did Peter do? Peter, he he took out his sword. Joseph, come up for a second. I want to show you something. Okay, now you got to see this to understand this. Peter cut off a guy's ear. And so what do we think about? We think that Peter went up and said, no, here's what Peter did. You better duck. (laughs) Now, aren't you glad I warned you? Okay, you can sit down. (laughs) Peter was going for his head and got an ear instead. Peter took out his sword because he was going to take things into his own hands. This is the only way he knew how to handle his enemies. I mean, an eye for an eye. If they're going to kill Jesus, I'm going to take out as many as I can. So he wasn't going for an ear. He was going for a head. Peter was going to take matters into his own hands. What, what did Jesus say? Put your sword away, Peter. Because the person who lives by the sword is going to die by the sword. In essence, Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, you're going to mess this whole thing up. You're going to mess this. If you're going to live by violence, you will die by violence. God has another plan. And Peter, if you take matter into your own hands, you're going to mess this whole thing up. You're going to turn this into a bloody mess. Put your sword away. When you're hurt, now listen to me. When you're hurt and you try to get even, all you're going to do is make a mess out of it. It will only make things worse, I assure you. It will only make things worse. Some of you right now have that sword in your hand. (laughs) And if you had the chance, you you would use it because, man, you have a burning desire to get even. You would hurt those who've hurt you. Leave it with the Lord. If you don't hear anything else I say this morning, listen as the Lord says to you, put your sword away. Put down, lay down that sword. Put those thoughts of retaliation, put those thoughts of revenge away for the sake of the gospel and for your own sake and for your own good. Retaliation is not the answer. Resist revenge. God, leave this with the Lord. He'll handle it with a better way. God always repays evil. Let me tell you another secret. God will reward endurance. When you endure suffering, when you do what is right, Peter says, and you suffer for it and patiently endure it, God will reward that endurance. He will reward reward your endurance when you endure insulting, when somebody treats you ugly and you do the right thing. What does the scripture say? Matthew 5, 11. Blessed are you, When people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is what? Great. Great is your reward. You know, the the greatest reward I can think of is for Jesus to look and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I mean, that's kind of what we're all working for, isn't it? 
But to think that, you know, there's another reward in heaven. When I patiently endure persecution, when I patiently, patiently endure insults, when I do the right thing, when people are mistreating me, God is pleased. And there's a reward for that behavior. So resist revenge. Leave it with the Lord. What do we do? Go back to verse 17. Here's another way we handle our adversaries. We pursue peace. Verse 17 and 18. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you. This is why I said attempt to bless your enemies. Paul says, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. One of the ways we respond to our adversaries is we pursue peace. And there's nothing passive about this. We actively pursue peace, as we'll see in just a moment. The ESV says, give thought to do that, to, to do that what is honorable in the sight of all men. One of the ways we deal with our enemies is we try to do what's right. We try to do what's right. To do what is right by all men. Do those things which are good, which even the unbeliever will recognize as good. Do it for the sake of the gospel. So what Paul told Titus, Titus 2.7, Paul says, in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. What's that saying? Do the right thing. Do the right thing. Be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Paul said, just do what's right. Hey, guys, it's not complicated sometimes. Just do what's right. Do what is right by all men gives us a chance to be at peace and promote the gospel. Now, again, we have to admit there's no guarantee that your enemy is going to respond the right way. As much as it depends on you. Let me tell you this. If you're in a relationship and there's no peace, things are not right, here's my word to you this morning. Just make sure it's not your fault. Okay, make sure it's not your fault. If you have offended someone, go and apologize and do what's right. If they have offended you and they've come to you, by all means, forgive them. By all means, forgive them. Now, we've had people in our life when we would go and apologize and they refuse to forgive. From my perspective, I think we've done all we can do. We continue to treat them with grace. We love them. We apologize sincerely. And if they don't forgive us, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. I think you've done your part. But again, you know, the Lord knows the heart. Make sure that you've done it with a, with a genuine heart. Again, that's why our first point was attempt to bless your, na- your enemies. If peace is not present, make sure it's not your fault. Do everything you can to make peace with your enemies. Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Be a peacemaker. Pursue peace. Be at peace with all men. We pursue peace by doing what's right by all men. If we mess up, we will. We seek forgiveness. We seek to make peace. If we have broken relationships, it's, you know, it's our fault. We ask forgiveness. If they come, as I said, and ask us, by all means, we forgive them. We, here's the key. We are forgivers. We are forgivers because God has forgiven us. I mean, you can see so many parables in the scripture that tell us that truth. We forgive other people who hurt us because God has forgiven us because we've sinned against him. We've sinned against almighty God, the holy God. 
So that's what a gospel-centered culture looks like. We deal with our enemies by pursuing peace, by doing what's right, refusing to take revenge, to get revenge. That's kind of the attitude, but what's the action? Verses 20 and 21, we kill them with kindness. <laughs> we kill them with kindness. Look at, at verse 20. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Kill him with kindness. Overcome evil with good. So not only are we to have the right attitude toward people who are our adversaries, but we're to do the right thing, have the right actions, okay? To do the right thing. Demonstrate kindness to those who hurt us. We're to actively minister to their needs. You know, Paul quotes a proverb here about the heaping burning coals, and he tells us that our acts of kindness in return for meanness will make our enemy extremely uncomfortable. And there's a lot of different teachings about this burning coals on their head, but what I see is that we will make them uncomfortable. This burning shame or conviction will come upon them because they've treated us with meanness and they got kindness back from us. It just burns me up. Because they're not, they're not fighting fair. <laughs> Did your wife ever do that to you? Your husband, they don't, they're not fighting fair. They're being kind. Bring a conviction by the way we respond. Treat them with kindness. Perhaps this conviction will lead them to repentance. Maybe not. Again, we can't, we're, not, you know, we're not in charge of the results. We're in charge of our response. Sometimes this conviction only intensifies their hatred. It really just burns them up that you won't fight. It just burns them up that you don't seek retaliation. It just burns them up that you won't get on that level and say what there's, you know, you just respond in a Christ-like way. And they bring that conviction, hopefully will bring them to repentance. Sometimes it just makes it worse. Their response is not our responsibility. I like what Booker T. Washington said. He said, I will not allow any man to make me lower myself by hating him. The only way I can destroy my enemy is to make him my friend. Don't you like that? <laughs> you want to get rid of your enemies? Just make them your friends. Just make them your friends. Overcome evil with good. That's what Jesus said in Luke 6, 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Again, notice the actions required. Love, do good, bless, pray for. Do you have enemies today? Do you have any adversaries? Love them. Do good to them. Anybody been talking bad about you? Bless them. Say something good about them. Speak well of them. Anybody mistreated you? Pray for them. Pray for them. Resist revenge. Kill them with kindness. That's the principle of adversity. Another key principle in the gospel-shaped culture is the principle of empathy. We see this in verse 15. You see how we're jumping around? Okay, back to verse 15. Because 14, 17 to 21 deal with revenge, as Barney Fife said. Revenge, don't do it. But verse 15 now tells us how we treat one another, okay? Verse 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We call that 
empathy. Now, let me tell you, the difference between empathy and sympathy, sympathy is when we feel sorrow for someone. Empathy is when we feel sorrow with someone. They hurt, we hurt. But the Bible says they rejoice, we rejoice. Rejoice with those that rejoice, cry with those that cry. Let me just tell you, being honest, sometimes it's easier to cry than it is rejoice, isn't it? Rejoice. Sometimes it's easier to cry than to rejoice. We often naturally want to share the sorrows of others. And uh, let me just encourage you just a second. Never back away from people who are hurting. Those who are crying. I've had people tell me, well, I don't want to go because I don't know what to say. Let me tell you a secret. It doesn't matter what you say. A friend of mine whose father died said this years ago, and I'll never forget it. She said, Keith, I don't remember anything anybody said but I remember everybody who was there. You don't have to have all the answers. Nobody does. But your presence, when somebody's hurting, when somebody's weeping, you can weep with those who weep. You can cry with those who cry simply by being there. You don't have to have all the answers, okay? What about rejoicing? Sometimes it's harder to rejoice over somebody else's victories. That's when our own selfish thoughts get in the way. I'm not going to rejoice. I resent that person. I'm not going to rejoice. I'm envious of you. Why do all the good things always happen to you? And so we're called to rejoice with those who rejoice. I'm not going to rejoice. I'm going to be jealous. I'm serious. Teresa and I talked about it. This is the hardest thing to do, to truly rejoice when other people are rejoicing. Don't you just love to see true friendship and loyalty expressed when people who are are not so fortunate and they truly rejoice when something good happens to somebody, to somebody else. Uh, Think of of Mary of Dr. Thorne. Think of Molly of Wives and Daughters. I'm trying to score points with my wife. These are chick flicks, okay? And we watch those often. But Mary of Dr. Thorne. At the bottom of the social scales, all her rich, snobby friends are getting married. Everything's good, and she just rejoices when good things happen. Some of you are smiling. You know Mary from Dr. Thorne. How about Molly from Wives and Daughters? She's at the bottom rung. All of her snobby friends are getting married. Everything's good, and she is truly rejoicing with all of her snobby friends because she's got personal integrity and quality. And what happens in the movie? They end up marrying the guy they always wanted to marry and inheriting half of England. Now, that may not happen to you, okay? That may not happen to you, but God's going to reward you for that kind of attitude. When we can rejoice with those who rejoice, it shows a level of spiritual maturity and, and in essence, faith. Faith. Okay. Rejoice with those who rejoice. That's empathy. Cry with those who cry. Another gospel-shaped culture principle is that of harmony. Accept the opinions of others. Look at verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind. Be of the same mind toward one another. The NIV says live in harmony with one another. And this, this is living in harmony with one another is the key to creating a gospel-shaped culture. It shows the world, again, that we're different. We can live in harmony. Now, I'm not a musician or a singer, but I love good harmony. 
You know, somebody heard me sing, said, Keith, you got a prison voice. I said, really? Yeah. I said, you're always behind a few bars looking for the right key. So I, I can't sing, but I enjoy har- Don't you love harmony? Let me tell you, my first crush as a kid, I think I was five or six years old. I fell in love with Janet Lennon. Do you know who Janet Lennon is? There we go. She was the youngest of the Lennon sisters. And they sang on Lawrence Welk every Saturday night. And I love Janet Lennon. And I love to hear her sing with her sisters. They, they sang in harmony. They didn't all sing the same note, but they sang in harmony. And they could harmonize beautifully, especially Janet. I mean, they sounded great, okay? And I would be there glued to my television when I didn't even appreciate music, but I saw that cute girl. But whenever we live in harmony, the world's going to sit up and take notice. And again, notice we don't all sing the same note. It does not mean we don't always think alike. We talked about this two weeks ago. We have different gifts, different perspectives, but we all come together for the same purpose and we live in harmony. As you do your thing, I do my thing. We have unity in diversity because we have the same mind. What does that mean? That we have the same purpose. Okay, we have the same purpose. That's what Paul said in Ephesians 4. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's over all and through all and in all. What does it mean? That we serve the same Father in different ways, but we're all of the same mind. Our focus is on the glory of Christ and his kingdom. And so we, we pool our talents together. We work together. We live in harmony. And it becomes a beautiful symphony to the world as they see the church in action. So we have the principles of adversity, empathy, harmony, courtesy. Accommodate, Paul says in verse 16. Accommodate all kinds of people. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Now listen to me, church. A gospel-shaped culture demands that we be kind to all kinds of people. There is no room in the gospel-shaped culture. There's no room in the church. Just make it so. There's no room in the church for discrimination or spiritual snobbery <laughs> or anybody who think I'm better than you. There's no room for that in the church. There's no way we can truly be recipients of his grace and not be open to all people from all walks of life. Why? Because, well, first of all, we look at Jesus. Who did Jesus associate with? Prostitutes, tax collectors, drunkards, all the outcasts of their society. That's who Jesus hung out with. The kind of people that gave him the most grief were the religious crowd, the religious snobs. But the truth is, and we must constantly remind ourselves, that we were all sinners, all sinners. And we are only saved by the grace of God. God has been gracious to us so we can be gracious to all kinds of people. The people we like and the people we don't like. People who are like us and people who are different from us. A gospel-shaped culture demands courtesy and that we treat all kinds of people with kindness. And then lastly, in the gospel-shaped culture, we experience the principle of humility. Verse 16, do not be wise in your own estimation. Paul said this in verse 3 as well. Do not think more highly of yourself than you should, but you assess yourself honestly. 
We talked about that up there. But humility comes when we see who God is and we see who we are. If we ever get a glimpse of the true character of God, we will always be humble. Always. Always be humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. But then again, the scripture says, don't think too lowly. There's a problem there too when we have a poor self-image. God has created us, designed us for his kingdom. And every one of us has a special role to play. We are people of great value as we, as I said, pool our resources, our gifts, and as we work together for the glory of God. We're gifted by the Lord for his service. All that we have, though, comes from him. What do you have that you did not receive, Paul asked the church at Corinth. So what's the key? Philippians 2, 3, this is the key to humility. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Regard one another as more important than yourself. I think this verse describes what true love is all about. When you find somebody in your life that you regard them as more important than yourself, you've found the one you love. And you want to consider them before you consider yourself, you found true love. I think that verse describes true love. It's the key for happiness in any home, any church or organization. Happiness and harmony when we have that attitude. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Well, as we close, this is what a gospel-shaped culture looks like. I think I left something out of my outline. Did you see it? What did I leave out of my outline? Devoted to prayer. Don't go to sleep on me, okay? I purposely put it in there three different times without mentioning it. Devoted to prayer. Devoted to prayer. Devoted to prayer. Look at that in verse 12. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Kobe and I talked about this, and I'm not trying to Jesus juke him because he preached that section last week, but we cannot do anything we've talked about if we're not devoted to prayer. Jack Taylor said it best years ago. He said, your spiritual life will never rise above the level of your prayer life. Devoted to prayer. Why is that so important? Because, first of all, if we have not been transformed by the gospel, we can't live in this kind of culture. We cannot live in a gospel-shaped culture if we are walking in the flesh. Walking in the flesh. We won't experience what we've been talking about if we're walking in the flesh. We won't experience if we're not filled with his spirit. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 6.18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. In the spirit. I'm, I'm going to ask you, be honest, how many of you pray too much? I just want to see your hand. You feel like, hey, I pray too much in my Christian life. None of us. Your pastor included. This is the key for living out a gospel-shaped culture is that we're walking in the Spirit. We're filled with the Spirit. We're praying in the Spirit. The mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Be devoted to prayer. The gospel, admit that you're a sinner. Believe that Christ died for you. Confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you can be saved and be a part of this kind of culture.
The culture changes the world because the gospel changes lives. Today, if you don't know Christ, we invite you to come as we close our service, as we sing. Come. I'll be happy to share with you how you can know Jesus personally. I'll be happy to pray with you. Any of our staff would. If you want to meet later, just let us know. But the gospel changes a culture because the gospel changes lives. Lord, thank you for your word today. Lord, help us to be people who will put the gospel on display.